Hello and welcome to our Mission Team podcast. My name is Patrick Magier and today my guest is Rory Stein. He will actually be a guest for two podcast episodes because Rory is in fact a living legend. Not only is he one of the greatest security experts I know, and that will be the topic of the first podcast, learning from a person who is ready to put his life in danger to help others. And the second podcast is going to be about his experiences as one of the protection team leaders of President Nelson Mandela. In this function, Rory has become a legend in the industry, and I look very much forward to everything we can learn from him and from the great Madiba Nelson Mandela. Rory, great to have you back, and we are now going to speak where we left it last time exactly about what is the experience, what is the knowledge we can take from the great Nelson Mandela. I actually need to show you something. I know it doesn't show well on the thing, but you know, this is the main picture in my living room. I, I was one of the privileged persons to ever shake the hands of Mr. Mandela. And this is obviously something quite impressive, but you had the privilege of working with him. And I, I read your book about um, these experiences. And I, I'd like actually you to start narrate this episode where you when you first were in service with him in 1994, because Nelson Mandela is very much known as a public person, but you had the opportunity to live a scene with him where there was no public watching, there was no media attention, and yet his behavior was extremely consistent with his own narrative. Correct. And it's a very good place to start, Patrick, because that was the day that I met him. And it was also the day that he became South Africa's first democratically elected president, which was the 10th of May, 1994. So just by way of very brief background, Mr. de Klerk, the last white state president of South Africa, announced on the 2nd of February, 1990, that he would release Mr. Mandela unconditionally and that he would unban all of the banned organizations that were banned under the apartheid legislation. So nine days later, on the 11th of February 1990, President Mandela walked out of prison. And you can all call to mind those iconic images. He's got his fist in there, he's holding his wife by the hand, and he comes out of prison. He goes straight to the Grand Parade in Cape Town, where he makes his first speech as a free man. And amongst many things, he says that on the Grand Parade, South Africa is for all her people, both black and white. And I'm sitting in my office at the police station in Johannesburg going, yeah, whatever. Of course, you're going to say that. That's the party line. I didn't expect anything different. I didn't believe him. Four years later, 1994, South Africa hosts her first democratic elections, which means that for the first time ever on the 27th of April, 1994, all South Africans above the age of 18 get to cast their vote. Again, iconic images come to my mind because there were queues like a long snake of people standing yes, in the hospital yes. to cast their vote. A few days later, he is inaugurated, swears the oath of office before the Chief Justice at the Union Buildings in Pretoria. And at that point, I am the commander 
of the Johannesburg Police VIP Protection and Bomb Disposal Unit. So I get a, a telex, Patrick, not even uh, not even a fax, never mind a modern correspondence. I get a telex saying that the newly inaugurated president will fly by helicopter from Pretoria, which is 60 kilometers north of Johannesburg, to the stadium, which is Ellis Park Stadium, and attend a soccer match, a football match. And why, you may ask, would anybody do that? Why would you go and shake hands with two teams lined up on the field for a football match 30 minutes after you've just sworn the oath of office and become president of your country? Well, that's a very good question. But there's also a very good answer. Somebody very astute on the organizing committee decided that if we put 60,000 soccer fans, all black, into Ellis Park Stadium, we televise on the big screens the proceedings where he swears the oath of office before the Chief Justice. And then that is 60,000 fewer people blocking the motorway going north from Johannesburg to Pretoria because me and my team of men and women police protection officers have got to move 184 heads of state, heads of government, royalty, and other big shot VIPs, because all the five-star hotels then were in Johannesburg. 13 of them we secured, and we had to get all of these VIPs moving in 184 motorcades up the freeway. So the freeway was not blocked up by 60,000 people that we can put into a soccer stadium, and the lawns of the union buildings where this big celebration of freedom and democracy was happening didn't have space for another 60,000 people anyway. So I think, well, if I get this instruction, I better go to the stadium. I do that. I take my men and women, I take the sniffer dogs from the bomb disposal unit, and we check that the president's suite is clear of anything, and we post the men and women at the entrances and exits and wait for the helicopter to come now. Yeah, it comes, it lands next door, and the motorcade drives the president around the corner, up a vehicle ramp, and stops on the wooden floor of the reception hall behind the president's suite. The Football Association officials welcome the president, but he doesn't go into the president's suite, but straight to the, to the elevator, down to the dressing room level, and walks out onto the field of play, and greets the two teams. South Africa is playing Zambia, who are the continental champions. Those 60,000 people now who've just watched their colleagues celebrating on the lawns of the union buildings up the road are now celebrating in the stands and the stadiums. And I'm asking myself the question, have you done enough, Rory? Got enough resources in play here? I've never protected the president. He's a new president and I've never worked in an all-black football stadium before. The president takes hands. He walks back up the tunnel, comes back up the elevator, gets into the car, and I take a step back as we prepare for the motorcade to go to the helipad, and nothing happens. The motorcade doesn't move, and we see him trying to open the door, but he's just got in to the vehicle, which is a 3.8-ton armored BMW. So when you're in your late 70s, you can't just flick an elbow and the door opens. So the team leader calls the bodyguard inside and says, hey, why does he want to get out? That guy says, I don't know. He hasn't said anything to me. So the team leader opens the door and he says to the president, why do you want to get out? The president doesn't say anything to him. Climbs back out of the vehicle he's just got into. He walks around the front of it. 
and he starts heading to the back of this reception hall where the vehicle ramp is, where he should be driving out. And the only person standing there is an old school apartheid era police colonel. And he's got his um, stars and castles on his shoulders. He's got some scrambled eggs on his cap to show that his rank is colonel. And his eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger because the president is walking directly towards him. And he's got no idea why. And we've got no idea why either. There are about 12 or 15 of us, all cops and security officers. And we are just tagging along behind the president because we don't know why he's got and the president stops in front of that colonel and he puts out his hand and says to him, Colonel, I just want to tell you that you are now our police. He said, I'm now the president of this country. But I want you to know from me that from today forward, there's no more you and us. You are our police too. And I hope you can grasp the symbolism of what President Mandela was saying, because that colonel represented the system that pursued him, arrested him, tried him, convicted him and imprisoned him for 27 years. And on the day, the very day that he realizes his freedom and that of his people, and when he has all the power over that system, iniquitous system, he, as I said earlier, extends not the fist of retribution, but the hand of forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a time where everybody had almost the feeling that whole South Africa was Team Mandela. Yeah, it, it was like it was like everybody was was striving up to these values. You, you just gave such a wonderful example of how we achieve that. But what has always been Something I was wondering, and I, I always wanted to ask you that, but where, where does this sense of forgiveness came from? I mean, the man used to be somebody running around with bombs. So yeah. did, it, did it something that just happened to him emotionally, or was it also very thought of, you know, rationally understanding, I need to change that if I want to succeed with one country? I think both. I think part of his upbringing and the way he was raised and the values that his parents initially, then the educational institutions where he was educated. Because remember, all of the schools that President Mandela attended were by missionary, Methodist missionaries. So proper values and an honest way of life would have been inculcated into him. And then despite the fact that later in life he took up arms when there was just no other option because the apartheid government was not listening to their own people. Now, I can't comment on the rightness or wrongness of that decision because I was not there. This I know only from what I've read and heard from his lips when I served him. The decision-making process run, ran like that. But what he also said, the president, was that when he was imprisoned on Robben Island, he had an incredible amount of of knowledge, intellectual property, political thinking around him from his political fellow political prisoners who didn't have much uh, uh, to do other than to sit and talk about how will they get the country to work once they come into power, however long that takes and whenever that may be. So there was a lot of that discussion. Then think of the 
political foresight and maturity that this took, Patrick. President Mandela decided to, in order to understand the psyche of his enemy, which was the Afrikaner who were in power under the National Party government, the apartheid government, in order to understand how they think and what makes them tick, he would engage with his prison warders. So the very people that kept him in a jail cell, he would talk to. And to the point that he invited three of them to his inauguration ceremony once he became president, four years after he was released, because he found them to be people of good character. And I can tell you that just like every German, not a Nazi, every Afrikaner is not a racist. Afrikaner people, by and large, are wonderful, hospitable, hardworking, honest, God-fearing people. I promise you that. Me as an English-speaking South African can testify to that about the Afrikaner. And so he found three men, at least, who he knew were inside. They were good people. And he invited them to his inauguration ceremony. So the values that informed his decision making were inculcated at a young age by his parents and by the educational. And I don't presume to speak for the president, by the way, Patrick. I'm just using my gray matter between my ears to figure this out. I think that's what it was. And then he had the incredible foresight to say, hey, we need to make this work. And in order to make it work, I need to work together with these people, not against them. So one of the many things that Mandela is on record as saying is, is this. It is better to sit down and talk to your enemy rather than to fight with him. And how much emotional and political um, capital that must have taken. Because these were people that were cruel and vindictive and put him in prison. And he said... When I come out, I'm going to choose to work with you. I'm not going to sweep you all um, away. Uh, I've seen you as a leader on the field. I've seen how you dealt with people. Give me the three most important points that you learned with regards to teams, to groups, respecting each other, working with each other, getting the best out of you. Um, what's the three top points you learned from Nelson Mandela? I learned many things from him. I will speak to the three things that I, I learned in my particular capacity as one of the team leaders. And I've mentioned the first one, absolutely fairness. In leadership, act fairly, and it's very difficult for anybody to criticize that decision or course of action, even if they don't agree with it. Secondly, the very diverse team that I led. I had men and women, I had black and white and every color in between, and we took a conscious decision as the unit, not just my team, the entire presidential protection unit took a conscious decision that we will flatten the hierarchical structures within those teams so that everybody has a voice. And it is a foolish leader who doesn't listen to every voice and every perspective because women see things differently from men. Black and white South Africans see things differently from one another because of the cultural background from from where they came. And everybody's opinion, not all of the time, but everybody's op opinion at some point will contribute to a better decision being made if you consult. And that's something that I had to learn because it wasn't something naturally inherent within my makeup. And then the last thing I'll say, Patrick, is that nobody sat down. 
as the protection team and said, okay, now you have to protect the most famous man in the world. And bear in mind that you also have to protect what he stands for and his legacy. It was something that we came to understand that, yes, we have to keep him alive and protect his life, but we also have to protect everything that he stands for. So even this agenda of reconciliation, if that is the agenda that the president chooses, we, as those who serve him, have an obligation to support that to whatever extent that we could. So just think about this moment in history when these two disparate forces are thrown together, cops trying to arrest freedom fighters one minute and the next day thrown into one pot and say, protect him. And out of that grew a brother and sisterhood that endures to this day, but that didn't come about naturally. But the power of the personality and the essence and the humanity of Mandela was the basis and the foundation on which that trust and friendship and brotherhood and sisterhood that exists now was based and built. So you need to give it time and you need to consult and you need to talk to somebody, even somebody who you may consider to be your enemy, because that is the example that Mandela set for us. So this this element of common goal and common values is has been the this, this third key driver that you mentioned. Yes, exactly. It's got to be a common value and a common driver. And you know what, Patrick, there may come a time and probably will come a time where you've got to cut people loose who don't aspire to those values or, or who don't have them. And that's okay because for the health of the team too, as well as for the benefit of the the client that you're serving, whether it's the president of a nation or whether it's a corporate entity that you consult to, it's going to be for the for the benefit of those. So you need to understand what that core value is and keep that central and front of mind and inculcate it and discuss it and talk about it, but also be on the lookout for as things change, because they will, how do you keep that that forward momentum? How do you keep that value system driving whatever change enters um, the milieu or the environment in which you operate. So, you know, that probably takes a little bit more time to unpack. But to your point, yes, absolutely. It's those values that must be fundamental and central. Unfortunately, we don't have more time, but thank you so much, Rory. I really appreciate it that you have taken the time and shared these very emotional moments with us. And uh, I'll, I'll definitely talk to you sooner next time. You're very welcome, my friend. I'm so glad you did this. Thank you for inviting me and good day to everybody listening and watching. Thank you for listening to our Mission Team podcast. Do not forget to register for the next episode and visit us on mission-team.com.